Amen. Hear the words of our Lord now from John chapter 9. I'll be reading the first seven verses. These are the words of God. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the wor- that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Thus the reading of God's word. Father, the word of Christ transforms, and the work of Christ is effective. The love of Christ is in this word. And so we pray the preaching of his word would work effectively in every hearer this morning. Do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, for we turn in submission even now to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I thought I was going to do it. I was going to do the entire chapter, chapter 9, the whole thing. Getting ready to do it, working through it. Friday, about halfway through my sermon prep, and I thought, it's going to be 90 degrees, and this is going to be a two and a half hour sermon. So, there you go. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Really, you've got to read chapter 9, even these verses, in light of all of chapter 8 and chapter 9, and I encourage you to do so as we continue through the gospel. 8 and 9 are really coming on the heels at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, and what's going on is all connected. It's all connected. And and also, we are going now through the the, uh, first... Um, 11 chapters of, of the Gospel of John, which is known as the Book of Signs. Seven signs that John carefully lays out to declare to us so that we might be able to see um, who Jesus is. We have seen Christ make wine of water, heal a son by his word, cause a lame man to walk, feed 5,000 men and their families, and walk on water. These signs, we are told, are selected so that the reader would believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that in believing, we would have life in his name. That's the end of of John, John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these are the signs. There are so many signs I could give you, John says. I could fill all the books of all the world if I were to show you all the signs that God has done through his Son. But I've shown you these seven, he says, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing, you would have life in his name. We come now to one of these. In this chapter, a man born blind receives his sight. Yet for all these signs, the Pharisees see a man from Galilee, rumored to be born of fornication, lawless in his refusal to obey the authorities' Sabbath regulations, claiming deity for himself when in fact they wonder if he is demon-possessed. And again, I'd remind you to to read all of chapter 8 and 9 to see this. In their willful unbelief in the face of these works, Jesus will declare at the end of this chapter, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. You know, when you read through the Gospels, you often, or you're doing your Bible reading programs, you oftentimes read a couple chapters, come to the end of the chapter, you close your Bible, you get up the next day, you start the next chapter, and you don't often notice that the story continues, that the, um, that the, yeah, parallels and contrasts need to be noticed right away. 
Um, the, the chapters and verses are not in the original text. They are added centuries later for our benefit to be able to turn. But take a look, for instance, for, with me. I want you to read verse 58, 59 of chapter 8, and then verse 1 of chapter 9. Maybe one and two. 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They took up stones to throw at him. Now listen carefully. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And then our passage now continues. So recall that this event comes right on the heels of Jesus declaring himself to be the I am, whereby they took up stones to throw at him. Jesus caused them to not be able to see him, going through the midst of them, it says, and leaving the temple. They can't see him. And then in 9-1, Jesus sees someone. The one he sees can't see and can't see him. In healing this man, this one who could not see is able to see, and the rest of the chapter is about the ones who can see him, but who cannot see. This is the sign of unbelief. This is the sign of unbelief, the story of spiritual blindness. But it is also the sign of the one who gives sight to the blind, where we will begin now. Certainly, far more is going on than simply Jesus healing blind man. Jesus heals blind uh, men throughout uh, the gospels and throughout the other gospel stories. This one is particular to the gospel of John. We ought to see what John is instructing us as he places this story in this part of the gospel at this time. So the story of the man being healed is simple and straightforward. I read it to you. And it's dripping, though. It's dripping with symbolism and teaching. It begins with the disciples' rabbinic question. They say, Verse 2, and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that we were born blind? Born blind. So they're, they're turning to him as a teacher, and they're, and they're saying there's this situation here, and now there's two possibilities. Either this man sinned or his parents sinned. Which one is it? What's going on here? They ask this question. And you see that. You see their worldview here. You see their worldview as they look upon um, their, the, the fallen world. Sickness and poverty, and afflictions, and deformities, etc. Sickness is a result of someone's past sin. Sickness here is a result of someone's past sin. And so they're like Job's accusers as they come to this, this, this man. Um, either you or your parents... Is their, is their view, if there's a sickness or affliction upon you, either you or your parents are responsible for that, brought about this sickness or this affliction due to something that was done in the past. That, that's, the, that's the only two options that they're working from. So they're like Job's accusers. Do you see that? Job, what's wrong? You need, there, obviously, there is sin that you must confess. Confess your sin. God will restore you back to a, a righteous life. Well, let's consider this for a second. First, it is true. We live in a world fraught with the results of the fall. And we are all, by nature, fallen humanity. And so because of that, we live in a world of, of the fall. And so we live in a world of the consequences of that fall, according to our parent, Adam. That is true. But, but secondly, there are often consequences of sin in this life that come from your sin, from decisions that you've made, from actions that you have taken. You do certain things, and oftentimes there are specific consequences that take place because of your sin. 
They could be legal consequences. They could be relational, familial consequences. They could, they could be health consequences. And they are a direct result, and you know it, because of the sin that you did, that you committed. But sometimes you can't make those connections. They're, it's not obvious at all as, as to why a particular affliction or a particular sin has come upon you. And so third, it's very true, there is such a thing as innocent suffering. Innocent, not in the sense of that you're not part of the fallen race, but innocent in the sense of that it's not connected directly to something you did. It's not connected to something directly that your parents did. This is, this is just something that God has brought upon you. Jesus turns the question, though, on its head, not just leaving those three different options. He really gives a fourth option, verses three and four. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Look at what's going on here. He's saying, I don't want you to look to the past as to why this man is blind. That's, that's not where I want you to look. I want you to look to the future as to why this man is blind. I don't want you to look to the past as to why there is this affliction, why there is this hurt, there's this difficulty. I want you to look to the future as to why there is this affliction that is going on right now. We tend to think that everything going on in our life is about us. And that's part of the reason that we end up centering, why is this happening to me? And we look back on the past. And sometimes we should, as I mentioned. Sometimes there's real repentance that needs to be made, restitution that needs to be made, and life in the consequences of those things that we have to live out. But even then, even then, oftentimes we get far too focused on ourselves and the consequences of our sin or the consequences or the affliction that we're living in, and we don't see, more importantly, we don't, yeah, we don't see, we don't believe that God's right there and he has purposes. Instead, we think we're, just, we're thinking about us as the center of the story. What do I need to do now to get out of this situation? But what if we learn to encounter our trials with our eyes centered on the more glorious story of which we are a part? What if times of affliction are given to us to open our eyes, to open our spiritual eyes to something far beyond what we're able to see until a miraculous opening of those eyes takes place? What then is the purpose of your affliction? John Piper, I think, addresses this quite well in his book. The title alone gives it to us. Don't waste your cancer. What would happen if we learned to encounter our trials that way? Well, we would have the opinion of Paul that when I am weak, I am strong. Listen to this paragraph from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So he says, I, I've been given this thorn in the flesh to keep me from some kind of sin, actually. The affliction came to keep me from boasting too much in myself. He goes on, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How many years did this blind man have to live born blind? We don't know. 
He was a grown man. Well, he was a grown man. He's probably a young, not too old because they're going to call his parents in. But he's, he's a grown man. How long did he have to deal with that affliction? Just so he could be in a story, in a book. Just so God could use his story in a book and weave it into teaching about spiritual blindness that each and every human being on the face of this earth needs to be healed from. Just to be in a story that God would use by the power of his Holy Spirit to open blind eyes for centuries and millennia. Do you think that blind man may be sitting in heaven right now, who's no longer blind, by the way, and praising God for the affliction that was brought before him? giving glory to God as to how God used that to the glory, for the glory of his name and the salvation of now his brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, Paul writes, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What if? What if we learn to encounter our trials with our eyes centered on the more glorious story of which we are a part? We might better comprehend the glory then even of election instead of simply complaining before God about this dark doctrine. Paul would write in Romans chapter 9, But indeed, O man, who are you to apply against God? Will a thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over this clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if you're not the center of the story? What if the potter is, you little pot? What if the story is about the potter and not you? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he may make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? What if the story is about the potter? And his glory being revealed as he pours his wrath out with complete holy justice upon vessels of wrath and pours out his glorious mercy upon vessels that he changes and transforms. What if that's what it's all about? And what if then we would join, what if because of that we would join in doxological praise like Paul does after dealing with this argument for three chapters and at the end of chapter, Romans, uh, chapter 11 of Romans, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. What if you saw your afflictions and your trials and what if you saw the world in the state it was in and what if you believed that God was at work as the potter and what if you came to such, a, such praise as to say, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways, why he's doing what he's doing, past finding out. But for, who's, for, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. It's all about him. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why does this happen? 
Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. There were certain works that Jesus knew. He had come for a period of time. He had works he was going to do. There were works that the Father had given him to do, and then he would be gone. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he goes and heals the man. He says, I'm the light of the world. That's not the first time he said this in, in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the light of the world, and this light particularly is a light that gives sight to those who are bound in darkness. So you can think of it as opening the eyes of the blind, or you can think of it as those who are in darkness, unable to see or make sense of what's before them, and the light of the world has come, and now they can see. In both situations, you have a situation where someone cannot see, but because Jesus has come, because Jesus has touched, because Jesus has spoken, now I can see. This passage, chapter 9, is a clear revealing of the blindness of those in chapter 8, who first brought the woman caught in adultery. Go back to chapter 8. Look at this for a second. Chapter 8, verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And Moses says, You know what you have to do, Jesus. And Jesus turns it all on its head, saying, If you want to follow the law, then let's follow the law right. Who here is going to be the witness to this, to this adulterous woman? Who here is going to say, I was there, I saw it? They all walk away. The law required Jesus is bringing light right then. The law required that there be witnesses. The law required that, the, um, that both the man and the woman caught in adultery both be judged and put to death. After they all leave, he says, again, he says in verse 11, um, verse 10, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. See that? I'm the light of the world. He follows me, shall not walk in darkness, particularly the darkness of false judgment, false accusations, false twisting of God's law. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness like that, but have the light of life. You know what God's law you know, God's law does condemn us. God's law leads us to life. God's law reveals to us the need for grace and grace only to be saved. God's law is not harsh. God's law is good. It's light to the blind, to lead us to the one who is light and life. So, Jesus has already said this, that he is the light of the world, and then, and then turns and to the Pharisees, he deals with this whole deal of bearing false witness in chapter 8, uh, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. And then we get to chapter 9. The story continues. He's still talking about spiritual blindness as he goes and heals this blind man. Now, re reading the story about how he goes about healing the blind man is the kind of thing that um, some of you cringe about. When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. You know, uh, lots of stories we like to reenact with our kids. I don't remember if we ever did this one. <laughs> Ew, right? 
let's reenact Jesus healing the blind man. Come here, come here. <laughs> I'll be Jesus. <laughs> you be the blind man. Right? Well, we might think this is gross that, that Jesus spits on the ground and makes clay to put on the blind man's eyes. Now, how many of you honestly have thought, why in the world did he do that? What's, what is going on here? Yeah, okay, thank you for your honesty. But even today, we acknowledge, even today, think about this, we acknowledge the medicinal value of a dog licking a wound. It really works. In the ancient world, spittle was considered medicinal, and there were rabbinical teachings on such treatment. But more, maybe more importantly, in addition, as early as the second century, Irenaeus noted the parallel to Genesis when God fashioned man with dirt and his breath, Genesis 2.7, saying what the, what the word, and this is from Irenaeus, what the word had omitted to form in the womb, he supplied in public, that the words of God might be manifested in him. All of this was to show that Christ was the world's creator and that he had come to make the new humanity. And so in a little... In a little snippet here, a little snapshot here, what we see is God who created the world perfectly sees man corrupt it and ruin it, and he's coming back and making it right again. He's making it right again, the same power of his word, the same power of his presence that he had before. He sent the, the, the man is sent to wash in the waters of Siloam. Siloam, we're told specifically here, means from the scent or the sent one. For Jesus, of course, is the sent one. The, the waters of Siloam, the pools of Siloam was the water that was used in, in that previous um, Feast of Tabernacles when they would pour out the water in, uh, uh, on, these, uh, on, on the altar during these days of celebration. So that he's going to the same um, pool where, this, where the festivals had been. He's going to the, one, to the pool called Sent. And then it was there that the labor of regeneration, the new birth represented by Christian baptism, takes place in pictures here in this man washing his face. So it's all about God, not you. And isn't that... If you'll, if you'll let the Spirit minister to you in that truth, I, I want you to hear that again. It's, not, it's about God and His glory, not you. And that's good news. Because if it's about God's glory and he sweeps you up in his glory as his creation, as his new creation, that glory is far, far more than any glory that any one of us puny little humans could create or bring forth or boast of. It's humbling but true. You're not a self-made man and you do not control your destiny. You're not. You are clay in the hand of the potter, Isaiah 64. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. You know, it's one of only two verses in the Old Testament, two chapters in the Old Testament where God is referred to as Father. O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay, and you're the potter. And all we are the work of your hand. He was the one who made you just the way you are in your mother's womb. Psalmist, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. 
This includes your physical attributes, your personality, your gifts, your strengths, your weaknesses, and how they all play out in each and every day of your life. So he'll say in, in the same Psalm, verse 16, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me. So in other words, he's creating you in the womb, he's creating this one in the womb, and he's creating with all that you will need for all, that he has, for all the days that he has planned for you and all the things that you are going to do. It was all given to you. It was all set in motion. This is how, this is how intricately the potter, the great potter, made you. Ephesians 1.11, not, not 2.11, I'm sorry, but Ephesians 1.11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have God's declare, declarations and of, 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 of your life and then his providential control of each and every day of your life that goes on. The hairs of your head, we are told, are numbered in Luke chapter 12, verse 7. And by the way, he's telling you that so that you do not fear. He knows every hair on your head, all numbered. And the point is, he knows every little detail about you so that you have nothing to fear. He knows every single detail about every single atom in your body and how those atoms are going to act and interact. He has that kind of absolute control. He's the perfect potter. When one grasps this by faith, it's overwhelming blessing. And that's what the psalmist in Psalm 139 begins with. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue. But behold, oh, Lord, you know it altogether. You, you know the word on my tongue before I say it. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And then just like Romans chapter 11, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. He ends the psalm. How precious are also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This is the, this is the prayer of somebody whose eyes are open. Spiritual eyes are open. This is not somebody who could write a psalm and talk, and, and talk about how great his life has gone. How everything went so well. If it is the psalm of David, I promise you, David's life did not go well all the time. A lot of trials, a lot of stumbles, a lot of heartache. And yet, David, or this psalmist, is able, in the, in, looking back on his life, looking back on the trials, if his eyes are not open, it's a bunch of drudgery. It's a bunch of difficulty. In fact, it starts to get to the point where you start looking at God and you start saying, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Right? <clears throat> but God opens the eyes of the blind. God opens the eyes of the blind. And when the great potter does this, you can't finish, you can't end, you can't stop counting the blessings. If your eyes are, are closed, if your eyes are blinded, if you're not seeing all this right now, <clears throat> And none of us see it all. Well, I don't know. I've never reached the point of Psalm 139, and then I just kind of live it nonstop. Not yet. But I will, and so will you.
I will, and so will you. And, and if you, if, I think if that gets a hold of you, even when you can't see it, it puts the right kind of shame upon you. You say to yourself, shame upon you. Shame upon you, Hatcher. You know what you're going to see. You know what the word says you're going to see. You can't see it yet? I, he's coming. He's coming to open your eyes. He's coming to open your eyes more than you could ever imagine. And the blessings that you will count for an eternity will never end. You won't be able to get to the end of all the blessings that God has given to you to the praise of his glorious grace for an eternity. That's why the psalmist writes these, these kinds of words and says, it's, this, such knowledge is too wonderful. If this is true, this is, that, that's too good to be true. Well, now you are saying what the psalmist says. Right? So he states the truth, <coughs> and maybe sometimes he states the truth when he doesn't feel it. Why don't we try doing that? Why don't we try stating the truth more often when we don't feel it? Why don't we just say sometimes, you've searched me and know me, you know my sitting down, my rising up, you know everything going on in my life. You've predestined all of it. And it's all for your glory. And it's all going to be for my good. I can't see it, I can't feel it, I don't, but I believe it. It's, it's, but it's hard, God, because it's too wonderful. I, I, it's too high. The knowledge is too great. I can't attain it. You know when you say that? When you say, it's too wonderful. I can't attain it. I can't understand it. It's beyond my ability to believe. Help my unbelief. You know what that is? That's worship. That's worship. That's telling God he's far beyond you. That's telling God he's infinitely far above you. It's okay to say that. I don't understand it. You, there's a way to say to God, I don't understand it. And, and he receives that as worship. And I don't get it. You know, I'm not talking about my sermons when you don't get my sermons. I'm talking about the truth of God's word. Right? This is what he has for us. So this is true not just of individuals. What's amazing is this is true of generations and peoples as well. The house of Israel can be made and remade, not just individuals, Jeremiah 18. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he had made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. And <coughs> you are all picturing yourself, maybe, as the clay, as the pot, and God's remaking you. But listen, then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel... Can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. And so this truth is not just about individuals, but it's about generations. It's about nations. It's about people. It's about families. The house of Israel can be made and remade. Jesus, Jesus warns his generation when he's there, in Matthew 12, 39, all kinds of verses, but here's one. Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is why we confess the sins of our nation corporately and not just our own individual sins because we're a part, we're caught up in it as well. <coughs> Peter calls on individuals to be saved from a perverse generation as he preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2. 
Throughout the Old Testament, entire nations are warned and judged as nations. And in Revelation, whole churches, or all the churches in a particular city, are warned. Seven different cities, and the churches in those cities are warned as churches. Look at verse 4 again. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus gives this dour warning to this generation, to these Pharisees who are blind. That's who he's going to address in the next verses. This dour warning is given to his disciples, but it's pointed at the unbelieving Jews that Jesus will deal with in the, in the next verses. This healing was a wonderful sign of what the Messiah could and would do. He would remain with that generation just for a short time, and then a great night, a great blackness would fall upon the Jews in that generation. The Jews who would not believe and would not flee the city Jerusalem, calling Jesus a liar and a thief and a blasphemer and having crucified him and having persecuted his church for an entire generation, that generation of unbelieving Jews would enter into the deepest of darkness as all of Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple completely leveled, not a stone left upon another. There wasn't anyone left when it was done. It was desolate. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, when he said to them those words, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So, it is possible that the blind could see, but they must come to the one who is revealing himself in these signs. They have to come to Jesus like the blind man came to Jesus. They have to be addressed by Jesus like the blind man is addressed by Jesus. They need his breath and his dirt to remake them, to open eyes. And this applies to individuals, to generations, to families, to nations at all times. I've repeatedly said that the book of John is an unpacking of the themes of the first 18 verses of the first chapter. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is that light. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1.9, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. There's the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. And all men and nations, all of them must deal with it. John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I don't want my eyes opened. I don't want to come out of the darkness. Jesus, for everyone practicing evil, hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Then later on in John, we will get here in John 12, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. This light has come. This sign is also a wonderful sign of what the Messiah has and will do. So it's a wonderful sign of what the Messiah would and could do in his day. And it's a wonderful sign for us of what the Messiah has and will do. What he has been doing and what he will do. This verse, this story of God opening blind eyes is our story. And it's our hope. It's our hope. As we pray for those who are unbelievers around us, it's our hope as we believe that Jesus is the light of the world and we preach that to the world around us, God can and will bring the nations to himself. Through his church, the light of the gospel remains. 
Again, John chapter 12. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so the church is the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Not him. He says you. And he doesn't mean you individually. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to, to the people of God. You together are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul saw that the light in the midst of the persecuting, in, in the midst of persecuting the light, and became blind. Now think about this. This is not, in fact, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Here it happens again. This is another blind man whose eyes are open. Another blind man whose eyes are open. Chapter 9 of the book of Acts. I'm just going to read the story so you can see this, because this is what God does. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man is not going to be saved. If you're in a Bible study and you're praying for, praying for people, and say, hey, you know we should pray for that guy Saul. What would you be praying? That he would stop. That you'd you knock him down, God. That you'd keep him from the Christians. How about if we pray that he gets saved? <laughs> he is a self-righteous prig. He's not going to be saved. He believes he can save himself. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone. Then Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? I, it, I, I think that, that the tone of voice from Jesus, that that might be, like, it's kind of hard kicking against the goads, isn't it? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he was blind. He saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive him his sight. And Ananias said, Lord, we were in this Bible study last night and we were praying just about this guy, Saul, but that's not what we were praying. Lord, I've heard many, from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And the Lord said, so what? He said, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. I'm not asking him. I'm not asking him. I've appointed him. And Ananias went in his way, and he entered the house, and the laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he rose and went and washed in the pool of Siloam while he was baptized. Do you see it? 
The Apostle Paul saw the light in the midst of persecuting the light and became blind only to hear the good news of the light and receive his sight. If that doesn't give you hope for the most wicked, stiff-necked unbeliever you know, I don't know where else to take you. God can. God can. And as far as, it, I believe, as far as it concerns you, as long as you know that person still, as long as you're still praying for that person, you ought to believe that God, in his foreordinating design, made sure you knew that person, had that person on your heart, and were pleading before him to change that man's heart to open his eyes. And believe he will. Pray and work to that end. It's no accident you know him or her. It's no accident. If he can do it to Saul, why can't he do it to that other person? Paul would later testify while in chains of what had happened to him. He'll tell this story again in Acts chapter 26. And he says in that story, as he goes through it, he says these other words that he heard from Jesus at that time. He said, I I will deliver you from the Jews and the Gentiles from whom I am now sending you to. Why? To open their eyes. I'm sending you there to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is why John tells this story. Right here in the middle of Pharisees who are attacking Jesus, refusing to believe on Jesus, making, mocking Jesus, calling him demon-possessed and a Samaritan and seeking to kill him. can't stop him. Jesus says, go ahead, try. Jesus says to the world, go ahead, try. Try and stop me. Try and stop me from opening blind eyes and giving the grace of forgiveness and turning men from darkness to light and from the power of Satan, God. Try, go ahead. The command of the church is clear and it is based on the authority of the risen Christ. Jesus came and spoke to them before he ascended. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you, always, even to the end of the age. Tell them that. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are and will be the triumphing church over history, the light of the world set on a hill, not under a bushel, bringing spiritual sight to the blind. Christ will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We're about to sing it in Psalm 72, bringing deliverance to all in their afflictions, as it says there in verse 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. The kingdom has come, and Jesus is remaking the world. For those who come to him in faith, sight is given to the blind, and you will share in the glory of that remade humanity. In fact, that is what you are doing right now, sharing in the glory of the remade humanity. Lord, while we do pray for physical healing for those in affliction, 
We pray with far more passion that you would open the spiritual eyes of those who are blind, that you would use this church, your people, in this generation, in this place, to be sons of light, to be the light of the world, to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we live our lives. For we ask it in the triumphing name of Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and amen.